Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krause. I hope you're staying healthy and I hope you're staying happy. A little bit later on in the show, author Sam Meggs stops by to talk about not one, but two of her new books, Conquest and The Unstoppable Wasp. We'll also hear from country singer Sasha on her new EP, The Best Thing. First though, Andrea Dorfman is a filmmaker, animator, and artist based in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Her films have played at film festivals around the world, won awards, and now she is back with a new one, now on VOD. Spinster stars actor and comedian Chelsea Peretti from Brooklyn Nine-Nine as a wedding caterer who gets dumped on her 39th birthday. Over the next year, she builds a new life based on self-empowerment and independence. Spinster is being called the anti-rom-com of the summer, so I began by asking her about subverting the rom-com genre. Here's Andrea Dorfman. It needed to be because there was only really one conclusion to mm -hmm. the rom-com, rom one sort of possible ending, and it was packaged as a, a happy ending. And... First of all, it's an ending that doesn't necessarily happen for everybody. It's not an ending that people that everybody necessarily even wants. And but when you're not given a choice, then it feels like you're pushed in that direction. And and I think for me and the writer Jennifer DL, I mean the the story is really lifted from lives of people we know from what I went through in my thirties and and that feeling of, well, what if I never meet somebody? You know, the rom-com, you know, offers up on a platter, well, this is what will happen, but not necessarily. And so, so it comes from a place of what could be a meaningful life that doesn't necessarily include all of those, you know, th those sort of markers of status, like partner, child, and, you know. So uh, the inspiration, you said some things that happened to you in your 30s, uh, there was uh, a story that I read um, about a friend of yours that was sort of woven in here. Um, and then I would imagine that you just use that as a starting point. The script was worked on for years, I'm told. Yeah. Uh, and then you, you extrapolate from there. Tell me a little bit about the process of putting it all together. Yeah, like, I mean, feature films are huge. They involve a lot of people along the way who have influence who can give you money or not and yep. and there were a couple of um lives of spinster that ended up dying and at the core we always wanted to tell a story of a of a single woman um that wasn't a quote em empowerment story but was real and so as i said we drew on on experiences i went through in my 30s and experiences jennifer had a good friend who was a, a biologist and and was always sort of asked, well, what, you know, like, why why are you single? And, and mm -hmm. it's sort of like this idea, and, and this is what I went through, was like, you can be accomplished and yet there's this idea that you then also have to be partnered up. So so we had all these ideas and, and uh, in the beginning I was a co-writer and Jennifer and I have, have collaborated on other films in the past and we've now worked out a system where we, we come up with the ideas together and the, and the plot points and the story. And then Jennifer is the sole writer and she goes and writes. She's a, she's a fantastic writer, amazing dialogue. And, um, and so, and then I direct, but I also am in very close contact with the script. And because I was there for, 
the, the sort of story creation, I, I'm invested all the way along. And, uh, and that really works well for us so that by the time I direct the film, I'm so enmeshed with the process of writing it that I know, for example, um, in writing Spinster, you know, I'll have locations in mind in, in Halifax and, and that can, you know, low budget films, you have to have ideas for location as you're writing uh, to be able to afford the, the location. And um, so I'm always thinking of these things along the way, but I would say from beginning when we first started, we went back and, and looked at emails because now with gmail you can go back i mean i think it was maybe 2009 or 10 when we first started talking about it i mean that being said jennifer and i have many films that we and film ideas and that are separate and together so it's not the only project that we were working on you're listening to my interview with andrea dorfman director of spinster now on vod yeah i think you always have to have a number of irons in the fire otherwise yeah. nothing ever gets done and it seems uh, counterintuitive. You have to have too much going on to get something done because yeah. you always need to be moving forward. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then you're, you also don't want to spread yourself too thinly. Mm -hmm. And, and, I, and then like, ironically, you kind of have to use all of your resources to make one film while keeping all these other things going on the side. So it's, uh, it starts to feel a little bit um, challenging and borderline impossible. <laughs> I think the title of the film is uh, ear-catching and eye-catching because it's simply a word you don't hear very often anymore, or certainly I hadn't heard uh, in a very long time, but it really kind of jumps off the page when you see it. Uh, was that kind of the purpose of, of naming the film Spinster? Absolutely. That Jennifer came up with the title, and she, she always talks about her, her spinster great aunts. I think they were her grandmother's sisters. Right. And she was so compelled. I mean, I wish she was here and she could talk about it, but she was so compelled by these women. And, and that generation would refer to them, not maybe not the women themselves, but they would have been referred to as spinster. I mean, we always, we do think of it as a word of the past and, and to use it in a contemporary way. I mean, I think it's almost a bad word, a taboo word. People would never claim that word. It's not like the, you know, people brought back words like the word slut and, mm. and really like celebrated it. But Spinster hasn't gotten there. In fact, it's sort of like been brushed under the carpet and it's like, let's use other more empowering words. Like I'm single or, you know, I'm, yeah, like Beyonce's all the single ladies song. Mm. Like it's, it's about empowerment. And, and this story, I wouldn't say is an empowerment story. Again, it's, we just wanted to, to normalize and talk about really a, an ordinary person. I think people are finding this from what I've seen uh, online and just reading people's reactions and things from the, the handful of people so far that have seen it at film mm -hmm. festivals and things, that people are finding it very relatable. And I think there's a, a number of reasons for that. But I think Chelsea Peretti is probably uh, right up there at the top of that list. She's really wonderful in this movie. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about finding her. When you're getting close to the shooting or even in the script writing, you start to think about cast and you start to think about, well, who would be great in this role? And of course, the, the character is 39. And there happen to be a lot of female actors uh, who we would know, celebrated actors, Hollywood actors, at, their, at that stage of life, actresses who aren't working. And it's, you know, I think that's just like the tragedy of Hollywood, that women age out way before men do. 
And um, so we went into the casting sort of knowing that there might be some availability. And we worked with a casting agent. I had seen Chelsea's Netflix special, wonderful special that came out probably the, the, a few months before we were shooting. And I, I hadn't been a Brooklyn Nine-Nine fan, but I loved what she had to say. I loved her delivery. I loved how relatable and authentic she was. And I just, and then that led me to Brooklyn Nine-Nine, which of course is hilarious and her character is great. But I just thought that maybe she would be somebody who could work well for the role. She just seemed, again, like she just seemed real, but also she had an edge. And we wanted somebody who had an edge. The character, you know, goes from being, being kind of barbed in a way, angry, to, to getting to another place, not to, to spoil the, the film. But when the casting agent approached her agent and got a script to her, she had, you know, she was between seasons of Brooklyn Nine-Nine. She had a baby. It seemed very unlikely that she'd come all the way across the, con the continent oh. to Nova Scotia. But she loved the script, and she really loved that it was a, a female story written by women, um, and directed by women like she just loved that it had this female energy and so she was game and it's like kudos to her for for bringing her baby and spending a month in a place that she'd never been without her family support and yeah really brave you know I had tons of admiration for her she was asked what is unique about your voice uh, and she said that being on a set where the top line uh, are run by women was very collaborative, that there was really great energy. Everyone felt really smart, creative, and enthusiastic. How do you respond to something like that? Yeah, that, you know, it's funny. I, she mentioned a few times how different the set was than other sets she'd been on. And, um, and I, of course, I, I mean, I used to be a camera assistant before I became a director. So I've been on a lot of sets as well as a technician. And I know what it's like to feel the hierarchy of a film set. I mean, film is based on, I think, the military, you know, the, the hierarchy of the military. Right. And it, it's very hierarchical. And I, and I don't like hierarchies. I mean, I, I prefer a set where if somebody came on the set, an alien, somebody from who wasn't part of the crew, they wouldn't know who the director is. Right. Because I, I really see my role as trying to bring out the best in everybody, trying to distill everybody's creative energy so that the end product is the best it can be. And if I'm, if I'm loud and micromanaging and, demanding and autocratic. I don't, I think that just freaks people out because I, I know that firsthand because it freaks me out. Mm -hmm. So I think, I mean, that's, I'm, I love hearing that she, she got that, that was the vibe of the set because that's certainly my goal as a, as a director. And, you know, mind you, while keeping everything between the rails of the vision, you can't include, you can't be so inclusive that it turns muddy. I, I need to go into it knowing what I want, but I also love, allowing other people to have a voice. And I think that only makes it better. You talk a little bit uh, in things that I've read about making movies that you would have liked to have seen at various stages in your life. Mm -hmm. uh, Spinster, I think based on what you'd said earlier about uh, a time in your thirties might have been one of those films. What exactly do you mean by that? 
actually, I, I did a little bit of, you know, really thinking back to what that time in my 30s was like through the process of making the film. And, and now I've given it a bit of a reflection now that the film is done. And, and I had a, a friend who, when I was single and depressed in my 30s and feeling like all of my friends were, were in some phase of falling in love, mm. getting married and having kids. Like it seemed like everybody was doing one of those things and I was just out of sync. And I was kind of bummed and she said to me, well, what if you never meet somebody? I mean, and she said it so matter of factly, she wasn't like, oh, but you might, you know, she just said it perfectly without any judgment. She said, well, you might never meet somebody. And for me, that was the beginning of a turning of my consciousness. And because I thought, I, I really sort of meditated on that a lot. And I thought, yeah, what, what if? I mean, I'm not, I mean, that anything could happen. I could get hit by a truck tomorrow riding my bike. I mean, anything could happen. And what if that, that happened? And, and I think that had I seen examples of, and I think I did start to, but if I'd seen stories that weren't rom-coms, that weren't, you know, even extraordinary women who were leading lives single, but just people like me, I think I would have felt comfort. And, and one of the places I did find a lot of comfort, comfort was sort of, was older women. I, m I remember at the time I befriended quite a few older women who really, you know, had their shit together in a way that was, that was quite amazing and inspiring to me. And I'm, I've always been the kind of person to look for teachers. You know, I, I tend to ask a lot of questions of people and, and search for answers. And, and so, yeah, so I think that in answer to your question, I think that's what, what I would mean by spinster. Um, and I, I hope that it's a film that people see and, and do feel similarly uh, akin to or comforted by. You're listening to my interview with Andrea Dorfman, director of Spinster, now on VOD. What does Halifax offer you? Uh, as a filmmaker, you lived there, you were based there. I've been here now more of my life than I'm from Toronto originally. I came here to go to art school. But as far as being a creative person and a filmmaker, it is such a rich, there's such a rich pool of talent here. There are, you know, the film community and the visual arts community, the music community, the theater community, there's just so much to draw on for, for me as a creative person and especially as a filmmaker. All of my films use the local music um, that comes out of Nova Scotia, which I just, I love. So I, I think as, you know, there's that, there's just the talent that exists here being the East, the biggest um, city on the East Coast. Mm -hmm. But I also think geographically to live in a place by the ocean, it's so beautiful. Um, and it's so easy to get to nature, you know, living in downtown Toronto growing up and wanting to leave the city, it would take, it seemed hours just to get out of the city. Whereas here you can, hop on a bike and get to a lake or the ocean. And, and again, as far as a creator goes, not only do I get to be in nature, which is inspiring, but bringing the camera to nature is just that much easier. Um, and then finally, I would say that uh, the, the arts community is a community and people really bring that to collaboration. And so I've had incredible experiences um, creating with people and whether it's my project or me working on somebody else's project people are really really willing here which is wonderful 
That was Andrea Dorfman. Find her very funny movie, Spinster, wherever you legally rent or download movies on VOD. Now let's have a quick visit with Ontario country singer-songwriter Sasha. She has a brand new EP with six songs. The Best Thing is a collection of work that includes a single from 2018 called Good Times Going. That's the one that really made her mark on the music charts. And now her most recent single, Cheers. Here we learn where she got her inspiration. Well, I grew up in a small town uh, in Northumberland uh, County. It's, the town's called Warkworth, Ontario. And, you know, it's just the lifestyle. It's country living. And that's where I got uh, inspiration for country living and country music. Um, you know, it's farms. It's uh, one yellow light in the middle of town, one main street. And uh, I lived on a dead-end road. And so my, my mother... Uh, she played Patsy Cline. That was my earliest experience. Uh, I'm really inclined to traditional country music, and um, Patsy Cline was my first recollection of country music. I was I was really young, so um, I don't know that I appreciated so much of the story until I got older. But it was the feeling, it was her voice, it was the sound, the music, the instrumentation. It's kind of triggers that nostalgia for me when you hear classic country music so the best thing is the is the new ep uh yeah. tell me a little bit about uh, the songs and kind of the the messages what would you like people to take away from this is it just throw it on the i don't even know what to say the cd player <laughs> spotify play however you enjoy fine music these days and right. uh and and sit back and enjoy or are there messages woven into it what what's uh what is this record all about well, you know, this record is a little bit of everything. Um, I've got songs that celebrate your uniqueness and in a fun and uh, uh, electrifying way, such as Cheers. Um, I've got songs that help people or anybody kind of maintain and believe in a standard that they uphold in relationships. And it could be um, related to a dream. I've got songs about love and afraid of taking risks and not knowing what would happen um, if you didn't take that risk and I've got songs about just having a good time <laughs> and, <laughs> and I've got songs for you know just sitting in the in a back of a Silverado and kicking back to some country old throwback country gold so it's a little bit of everything. That was country singer Sasha talking about her new EP, The Best Thing. You can listen to the EP on Apple Music and Spotify. Before we get to the next part of the show, I have a really cool contest that I want to tell you about. If you are like me, you are beyond excited to see Christopher Nolan's movie Tenant. I'll tell you what it's about. Armed with only one word, Tenant, and fighting for the survival of the entire world, the protagonist, played by John David Washington, journeys through a twilight world of international espionage on a mission that will unfold in something beyond real time. It's not time travel, it's inversion. And because it's Christopher Nolan, it's not just inversion, you know it's going to be exciting as well. And Warner Brothers is asking fans and at-home filmmakers to show us their interpretation of time, and that's time in quotation marks. Does it move quickly? 
slowly? Is it a mixture of both? Or is it inversion as seen in Christopher Nolan's Tenet? The most inventive and exciting video as selected by me will win $10,000 with their video debuting nationally on eTalk and being featured in the Cineplex pre-show in theaters nationwide. Here's how you enter. You create a short video, that's 55 seconds or less. Then post the video to Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, or Vimeo. And then send a link of the videos posted on your social media to the contest entry page at warnerbrothers.com forward slash inspired by tenant. Also, hashtag the video inspired by tenant. Entry videos must be original and cannot contain any music or third-party materials. That's brand logos or graphics or film footage, any of that stuff. All original material only. The contest ends on August 17th and is open to Canadian residents. And I can't wait to see what you guys come up with. My guest in this segment is Sam Meggs, a best-selling author of books, comics, and video games. Perhaps you know her books, the Fangirl's Guide to the Galaxy, Wonder Woman, and Girl Squads. Uh, she is a comic book writer for beloved titles like Captain Marvel, My Little Pony, Star Trek, and Jen and the Holograms. She's now living in Los Angeles. She's from Canada, and her bio says she misses coffee crisps and bagged milk. I'm so excited to chat with you. It's oh, like, it's... It's so, it makes me feel normal, like <laughs> a little bit, you know? <laughs> well, I know. I mean, it's, it's such an odd time. And I was wondering, though, because you have not one, but two books out now. And I thought initially, oh, well, being in isolation has given her all this time to work. Except these were probably written far before we all had to lock the doors and stay inside, right? Yeah, yeah, I wrote both of them last year, actually. Well, kind of through a confluence of circumstances, they just ended up out at the same time. I've been working on Conquest for years and years. I've been working on The Wasp for the last year. Uh, and then they came out within like three weeks of each other. So some very exciting. It's obviously different releasing a book during uh, COVID-19 um, than it is normally, but we're making the best of it. And I think uh, everyone is at home right now, needs something to do, uh, is missing conventions, Conventions and that sort of like nerd culture aspect. So hopefully this can maybe fill the void a little bit. Well, let's talk about Conquest. This, I guess, is the first uh, fiction that you've written that's been yeah, published. Yeah, isn't that so, bananas? I've written video games and comic books, but it was my first fiction novel, which yeah. was very intimidating and exciting. Yeah, so tell me about it. It, it, it. I remember you telling me about writing video games, and they are... 10 times longer than any book is going to be because yeah. you have to have all these avenues for the characters to go down just in case someone takes a left or right turn. So it's a much different thing. When you're writing a novel like this, you have spent so much time writing video games. Is it harder to focus? Is it easier? Does it feel like less work? What's it like? It's a great question. I think it all comes down to collaboration. With video mm. games, you're working with so many people and with so many different moving parts. You're having to fit the story around gameplay and level design and level art and the engine and you know what the creative director wants, what your publisher wants. And there are all these different pieces that go into making a video game that you as the writer have like very little control, I would right. say. Uh, whereas with a novel, it's basically you and your editor and you have full control, which is both like awesome in a way, but then also kind of like 
like I said, like kind of terrifying in a way because all the pressure is on you. It's very isolating. Like you do all the work by yourself in a room alone for the most part. Yeah. So that's super different. Um, and you basically, there's only like your editor and your agent to bounce ideas off of. So it definitely is a lot more of a personal experience, I would say. But I did kind of enjoy that too, because I was able to bring a lot of my own story, a lot of my own experience with conventions into the book. This is a work of fiction, uh, but it's been your entire life kind of leading up to it and <laughs> gathering the experiences that you would need to have to write this book. So talk a little bit about um, what the, the, the premise is and why it's good for young people. This is a book we should mention that's aimed at young adults. And, and, uh, and your, your position is that um, convention culture is good for them, but there are things to be aware of. Yeah, absolutely. Conquest. So Conquest is a middle grade book, usually recommended for, uh, you know, ages around eight through 12. And it follows two tween twins as they uh, adventure through the biggest Comic-Con in the world. Uh, and as they're there, they decide to compete in the biggest scavenger hunt in the world mm -hmm. as well. So it's a sort of double whammy of like a cool scavenger hunt at Comic-Con. Um, and I, I have been going to comic book conventions for a decade now, professionally for about five years. I've been to more than I can count. They are my favorite place ever because you can go there and be immediately surrounded by people that you know you have something in common with. You know, I think as nerds, I know me personally, I struggle a little bit socially. It's hard to know how to break ice. It's hard to know how to make new friends. When you go to a con, you can really just be entirely yourself because you know everyone else at a comic book convention is like a big nerd too, who kind of <laughs> is into the same things that you're into. That's an immediate icebreaker. That's an immediate thing you have in common. And it's great to be somewhere where you can be free of judgment. And so I think it's a really important space. Lots of conventions have kids-specific content as well. So I think it's a really great opportunity to go um, make friends and really be able to embrace your weirdness um, as much as you want. You're listening to my interview with best-selling author Sam Meggs. I love conventions because of that. They yeah. seem to be, you walk in and there's a sea of people. And if you have any social anxiety whatsoever, that sea of people could be quite intimidating, except that they are, in my experience anyway, judgment-free zones. You are there to, uh, to luxuriate in whatever it is that you are a fan of and whatever it is that you uh, love. And there's going to be people like you running around that you will meet and there will be cool costumes and everyone likes to take pictures and hang out. And it's super fun in a way that when I went to my first one, I could never really have imagined. Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of, I think you go and you're like, oh, do I have to dress up? It's intimidating. Yeah. There's all these people. It's kind of like, seems like a lot, but you show up and you realize everyone's just there to have a good time. Mm -hmm. Everyone's there to share their love of the same thing. And I think it makes it kind of like a magical space uh, where you get to share your passion with all of these other people. And it's, it's pretty cool. What personal experiences, other than the sort of the general things that we just talked about, made their way into Conquest? All kinds of stuff. So one of my favorite things to do in the book is all of the fictional properties, uh, like the, the comic books and TV shows and movies that the kids are into in the book are all based on real world properties. They all have real analogies. So it's kind of like almost scavenger hunt for adults if you're reading right. the book to find yeah. out Easter like- Easter eggs what, for them, yeah. 
Yeah, super. I had a ton of fun making those up. So you can kind of try to puzzle those out. Um, also, a lot of the people in the book and experiences are based on like real things that have happened to me at cons. And the antagonist in the book um, is based on an amalgamation of sort of gatekeeping nerd dudes who over the years have sort of uh, <laughs> told me that maybe I don't belong in fandom or that I'm not a real nerd and that I'm ruining their hobbies or whatever. So um, making that bad guy was very fun for me. Right, well, that's, that was the pitfalls that I was referring to earlier um, because that is part of this whole world. I mean, we talk about judgment-free zones and that kind of thing. It's not always exactly judgment-free. And you've certainly had your, your experience with that. Yes, yeah, certainly. I think that, you know, that is definitely uh, a part of the nerd world that we hear about a lot. It's something that I think was important to include in the book as like the real sort of bad guy here. But ultimately, what I wanted to get across with the book and what I think is true of my experience and many people's experience in fandom is that that is what we talk about the most, but it is like such a small, small, small fraction of what this world actually is. For the most part, I've made incredible friends, I've had incredible experiences, I've done amazing things, gone amazing places. You know, it's yeah. so overwhelmingly positive to be involved in this nerd world. I wish we talked about that part more. So I kind of, he's the bad guy, but he's not really like, the story's not really about him. <laughs> <laughs> you also have the unstoppable wasp built on hope coming out as well. So there must have been some overlap in the writing, I'm assuming. Uh, yeah. Um, tell me what a day is like for you in isolation or not as a writer i'm supposing it doesn't make that much difference you just go outside less probably uh these days but um what how does a day you're so prolific and oh. you do you know you're on a web series you do lots of things so what what's a day like for you I wish I had some like glamorous answer to this question, but uh, while I was writing, I'm, I'm a full-time freelancer now, which is very exciting, but while I was writing both of these books, I had a full-time job in video games, uh, which is, people are surprised to learn this, but working in video games is just working a corporate nine to five. You get up, you go to an office, you have meetings, you sit there with a cup of coffee, you're kind of tired all day, you have more meetings, like it's a lot of just like regular kind of mm. business stuff in a way. So while I was writing these books, I was working my nine to five job in games all day and then I would come home and then evenings and weekends I would write my books and my comics like my independent stuff um which did does mean that I I have no work-life balance essentially I have right. like I'm terrible at keeping up with friends <laughs> like I'm horrible at have, I don't have any hobbies <laughs> like I this is so I've, I've quit my full-time job now I'm a contractor which is great so I'm trying to like work on that. I don't want to say this. I'm not trying to glamorize it. Like I'm trying to be honest that like I it's work the all toughest the time part of I'm a workaholic because I'm a millennial and it's not a good look. Like <laughs> uh, uh, Here's a little bit more of my conversation with Sam Meggs where we talk about the work-life balance, making it work as part of the gig economy. I think you and I are very similar in that we enjoy the work that we do. Like our work kind of is our hobby, but then that's also really dangerous because you're basically monetizing like every aspect of your life. And so you're not really getting any downtime. And like, even to be like reading a book or watching a movie can sometimes also feel like work. Cause I feel like it's hard to turn off my brain cause I'm analyzing yeah. all the time or like even playing a video game. Um, so yeah, it's something that I'm trying to figure out cause I do really enjoy working. Um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like this is a big problem for lots of folks who are mm -hmm. passionate about the industry in which they work. And it's it's kind of like, you know, we would do this stuff for fun uh, as well. Yeah. It's hard to find that balance. Well, it's that old saying, uh, 
if you do what you love, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life, except that you'll work all the time. You That's work every day. Because <laughs> <'cause laughs> I do love what I do, but I end up working all the time. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so writing Wasp was fun, at least. Like, I will say that the benefit of being in all the different industries that I'm in writing, the difference between writing like a middle grade book like Conquest, a YA like teen book like Wasp, a video game, comic books, graphic novels, like they are all really different mediums. Mm -hmm. So even though I'm technically writing all the time, it does always feel like I'm challenging myself in a different way or like doing stuff online, doing hosting. Like it, it at least is, keeps me like, keeps my brain kind of working in different ways. Cause they are all, you know, writing a video game to your point is very different than writing a comic book script is very different right, than writing a YA novel. So I at least get some variety. <laughs> <laughs> tell me about Nadia Van Dyne. For people who don't know, uh, tell me what we need to know about her. Great question. So Nadia Van Dyne is the unstoppable wasp. Her father, Hank Pym, who if you watch the Mar MCU Marvel Universe movies, um, is, is in though he was the original Ant-Man, uh, but she was kidnapped and raised in the Red Room, kind of like Black Widow, uh, except Nadia was put onto the science track and she ended up reinventing these Pym particles and turning herself into the Wasp. She was able to shrink and escape and make her way to New York City, uh, where she discovered that her father had passed away, but his wife, Janet Van Dyne, the original Wasp, was still around. And so Nadia kind of gets adopted by Janet and ends up, you know, becoming her one of the Avengers as well, her own version of the Wasp. In the comic books that precede the books, uh, which I totally recommend you pick up, the Unstoppable Wasp comic book series by Jeremy Whitley and Guru Hero, so great. Um, Nadia discovers that S.H.I.E.L.D. has put out a list of the 100 smartest people in the world, and the first woman doesn't appear on the list until number 27. And Nadia is incensed about it, and she makes it her goal to find all the smartest teen girls in New York City and create her own science lab. And so that's kind of where we pick up in the book where Nadia is trying to be uh, the best scientist, the best superhero, the best stepdaughter, the best friend, the best driver, like the best at all of these different things um, that she's trying to master in her life and discovers very quickly uh, that she can't do that. She turns to AI for help. And as you can probably imagine, um, things go downhill from there. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's so interesting that uh, the, the, the lead up to this novel is all of that because yeah. of your uh, previous books, uh, Fangirl's Guide to the Galaxy, Wonder Women and Girl Squads. Uh, it, it's as though you were destined to work on this, uh, on this project. Oh, thank you for saying that. It was part of the reason, uh, you know, when I first went to Marvel to have, a, to have a meeting about like, what character would you really want to write for us? Immediately, my answer was Nadia Van Dyne, not only because, you know, we share kind of like a similar Eastern European background and immigrant story. And, um, you know, I, I love uh, the girl power aspect to it. Every book I write is about sort of female friendship like you said, to an extent, but also because I had written several nonfiction books about women in science and women in science history. Um, and a big part of this book and the comics is Nadia's neat science facts. So there are cutaways through the book that explain all of the superhero science in the book in like real terms using real physics, real science, real biology. Um, I'm not a scientist, but I did have a lot of experience being a science communicator right. um, because of my nonfiction project. So it was like kind of a perfect set. You're listening to my interview with best-selling author Sam Maggs. Research is one of your things too, because you studied uh, Victorian uh, <laughs> yeah. literature. Yeah, although I admit there were a couple times writing The Wasp where I was like two in the morning and I was trying to like 
understand the physics of like why you move faster when you're small and everything else. So right. I was just like, I have made a horrible, I have a master's in English. <laughs> I've made a terrible mistake. I want to go back. Like, there were a couple of those moments, but uh, no, it was super fun. And I got to work with a lot of really uh, talented, wonderful um, science, actual scientists on the book who made sure that my work was accurate and clinical psychologists as well, because Nadia does struggle with some mental health issues. And so we wanted to make sure that the representation of that in the book was accurate as well. So that was, I feel very fortunate that I was able to work with people who did know what they were talking about. So you said you went to Marvel to have a meeting and they're like, who would you like to write about? Tell me what it's like to go to Marvel for a meeting. They are at the very center of popular culture right now. Tell me what that's like. Hugely intimidating, as yeah. you can probably imagine. The first Marvel project I really worked on was I write a series of Captain Mar all ages Captain Marvel comics for IDW. Uh, and I remember trying to, I wasn't, it wasn't even an in-person meeting. I was just pitching over email. And I remember just feeling like this bananas amount of pressure because she's my favorite superhero it was marvel like we all love marvel so much it's such a big like you say part of our like culture in general right now and it like paralyzed me at the time and i got past that which was great so i had been writing captain marvel for a while when this opportunity came up but you go to disney like you go to the like disney lot here yeah. and it's like the fences have little mickeys on them and like the, the starbucks the, and yeah, like the Snow White characters were on the building on the outside yeah, of one exactly. of the buildings. It's that, like, yeah, it's all, you know, every Starbucks has like Mickey drinks. Like it's all, the Imagineers are like in that building where they make all the parks. Like you're just, you're kind of like, this is bananas. And then you sit outside on their like big campus in California and they're just like, so who do you want to write? And you kind of know that they have the right answer in mind, but they want you to come up with it. So you just right. have to like hope that you're like thinking what they're thinking. And, like, <laughs> so it is, it's really intimidating, but it's also amazing. It's like, I obviously, like you said, my first book was the Fangirl's Guide to the Galaxy. I've been a fan of this stuff since like birth. It's like basically my whole personality. So it is a very cool thing as a fan to go to do this stuff and have to like hide that part of yourself a little bit and like be cool <laughs> um but it, it is it is very it is cool <laughs> and, and you're yeah. re you're reworking some of your other books right yeah actually uh, an all-new second edition of the fangirl's guide to the galaxy called the fangirl's guide to the universe is coming out in October, at the end of October. Um, so it was great, I had the opportunity. We have all new art in the book by Kat Good, um, all new interviews, it's totally updated for 2020. It's great because the original came out five years ago. Pop culture has changed a lot in the last five yeah, years. Yeah. Uh, and we're also releasing a companion journal, so like a fill-outable kind of journal as well called the Fangirls Journal for leveling up and it has matching art, matching cover and everything so you can kind of make your own fangirl journey and that and that's out at the end of October this year. Um, so that was another thing I wrote last year. <laughs> There's so much. Do you ever sort of slow down and, and just enjoy it or is it always the next thing? That it's, that's a really interesting question that it feels very existential for me <laughs> because I am part of like the gig economy, right? I'm a yeah. freelancer. Uh, a lot, I'm as again, as a millennial, a lot of my self-worth is tied to my output. Mm -hmm. So I know, like I feel very burnt out right now and it's my plan to kind of take it slow this fall a little bit. Like I'll still work, but slow down a little bit. But at the same time, like there's this panic that happens in you where you're like, oh my gosh, if I, you know, like if I don't have the next yeah. thing lined up, like am I not gonna make money anymore? Am I gonna become obsolete? Is somebody gonna take my place? Like, Will I be forgotten? Do you wanna hear yeah. from me anymore? Like, 
um, I don't know, I should be talking to my therapist about this and not you and I do, but like, I feel like this is something that maybe a lot of people who are creative can relate to wanting to stay relevant and produce, produce, produce all the time. But like, you can't, you need part of producing is going back to the well and refilling your creativity and taking time to like sit and not work. Um, I'm bad at that. I well, need to I be think better at that. that. That's the tough lesson or one of the tough lessons to learn is that you do have to recharge and it's really hard because uh, for years, I just thought if I ever said no to a gig, then obviously what that meant is someone else would get that gig and they would be better than I was at it. And then they would get all the gigs and I would have no gigs. And so yeah. I would say no to a gig for uh, you know 20 years. It is, it is a relief to hear you say that saying no in work is very difficult because it's something that I struggle with all the yeah. time. Um, and you know, you have to get better at that as you get busier and be, you know, have the opportunity and the blessing to be choosier about the things that come your way, but you still have that, uh, like freelancer mentality of like, oh my gosh, if I say no, what if I say no and I never get an opportunity again? You know what I mean? Like, yeah. which is bananas. Like it doesn't make any sense, but it is like, it is a product of the culture in which we live, I think. Um, where we are told so often that like our value is tied to our job, what we yep. make, what we're producing, um, which is not the case. <laughs> nope. It's not true. Um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. It's funny. I worked super, super hard last year. I I have six books out in like a calendar year, which is too many. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it's great. But I, I took the year off last year from traveling. I didn't do like any conventions. I didn't do any book tours. I didn't go to any library visits. Like I didn't travel at all because I was like 2020. I'm gonna be on the road all the time. I'm gonna go to so many conventions. Right. I'm gonna be on like six book tours. Me amazing. <laughs> and, and here we are. So I haven't gone anywhere in like two years. <laughs> I, I messed up. I made a mistake. <laughs> That's it for my interview with Sam Maggs. Find her book, Conquest and the Unstoppable Wasp Built on Hope, wherever you buy fine books. My thanks to country singer Sasha for stopping by. Check out her new EP, The Best Thing, on Spotify or Apple Music. My thanks also to Andrea Dorfman for coming by. You can find her really great movie, Spinster, wherever you legally download or rent movies. Most of all, though, my biggest thanks, as always, goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krauss. Stay happy, stay healthy, and we'll talk again soon.